This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. From North State Public Radio in Northern California, I'm Jennifer Jewell. This week on Cultivating Place, I'm so excited to offer you our first ever seasonal special, celebrating this season of harvest, of taking stock, of giving back, of deep gratitude, and of preparing for the restorative dark of winter ahead. Gardeners from around the world share with us what gratitude in the garden looks like to them. Our central conversation will be with earth artist Day Shilkret, who makes meaning and beauty with his daily practice of mourning altars. But first, some of you, gardeners in this world, share what gratitude in the garden looks like. Hello, it's Kristen Gale, and I garden in Victoria, British Columbia. Gratitude in the garden, to me, is the range of colors I can lose myself in. It's seeing and trying to see. It's gathering amber, saffron, and yellow. It's discerning peach from pale pink, avocado from celandon, and making a bouquet of corals, some gold, some orange, some shocking pink. Gratitude is holding those flowers I've raised from seed in my hand, twisting and turning them in the light. It's squinting and straining and trying and tweaking and losing myself in plants. My name is Sabrina. I am a social worker in Oxford, Ohio. I am very thankful for my house and gardens, which act as a sanctuary for me and my family. I created over nine years ago a labyrinth out of Moan Meadow. It is filled with native flowers, spring bulbs, which I planted, along with several birds' nests, many butterflies, moths, and of course, the magical fireflies. On occasion, we get visitors in the form of rabbits and deer. When I begin walking and meditating the moan spiral, I am often feeling overstimulated. But after several deep breaths, a calmness settles in. At the center of the spiral is a metal and cobalt glass sculpture that I use as a touching stone. As I stroll out, I have a restored energy and feel that my soul has been fed. I am thankful to have this simple garden structure to experience and share with my friends and family. My name is Lorraine and I live and garden in Seattle, Washington. Gratitude in my garden looks like a mix of wide-eyed wonder and stubborn resilience. I revel in everyday beauties, the golden light on the muscled trunk of an old tree, harvesting armloads of flowers for my daughter's wedding, or a proud line of tomatoes ripening on the kitchen windowsill. And I'm forever learning to accept the sometimes not so beautiful. My garden failures, pests, drought, neglect. They teach me to trust in the constancy of natural rhythms. And there's always next year. Hi, I'm Misty Little, and I garden in the greater Houston area. My garden teaches me daily to be thankful for the small things in life and to be prepared for the grander things when they arrive. Sometimes I'm only able to take a few moments in the garden after a busy day, and it's the Gulf Coast toad a spot bouncing in the garden that gives me delight, or finding a new caterpillar to try to identify. Other times, it is seeing a bald eagle or a swallowtail kite soaring over our pond, or a barred owl kind enough to sit quietly on its perch in a hickory tree while I pull weeds in my edible garden. There are slow teaching moments everywhere if you know where to look. My name is Michelle, and I garden in a suburb of Vancouver, BC, Canada. Gratitude for me is witnessing the wonder of this life in my garden. Whether it's in a tiny seed, a vibrant flower, 
a vegetable grown, a busy pollinating bee, a dried out seed head, or the critters who build the soil. All of this allows me to witness the intricacies of life in my little garden, and for that I am thankful. My name is Rick, and my wife Melinda and I live and garden together in southeastern Pennsylvania. Gratitude in Our Home Habitat is a three-dimensional collection of stories, reminders of all we're thankful for. It's a landscape celebrating experience, crafted of elements that speak of treasured relationships with people, place, and the transient wildlife moving through it all. We're grateful for its comfort and inspiration, its constancy and caprice. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. The late autumn into winter months, from the harvest moon rising in October to the winter solstice on December 21st, and through even to the beginning of the new calendar year, mark a traditional season of gratitude, of giving thanks, and of offerings of generous service. For me, my garden itself and my gardening practice are my very best, most consistent acts of both gratitude and service to the world. And I know many other gardeners and cultivators feel the same. The garden, very much like the grace that writer and thinker Anne Lamott references, rises to meet many gardeners where we are. And sometimes it does not leave us where we started, but it nurtures us along further than we believed was possible. In this season, Cultivating Place offers out its very first seasonal special, a special celebrating, exploring, and honoring the abundance our gardens and nature brings to us, as well as all that we grow while we're there. We hope you enjoy the central conversation as much as you do the many voices of gardeners from around the world who share with us their own thoughts on what gratitude in the garden looks like. Picture this, a land-based work of art. It's peaceful and inviting. I see bright orange and pink flowers. They look to be fragrant, like roses or peonies. I see deep blue-green coniferous branches with scaly textural needles. I see structural brown cones and bright red berries. I see yellow seed heads forming a unifying pattern and shape to the whole. In this still view, there is also dynamic movement. I could be standing in the center of a garden, but actually I'm looking at a beautiful morning altar. For some time now, I've been following the work of an artist whose most prominent project is known as Morning Altars, the concept and gratitude and service project to the world of Day Shilkret. One part daily forage and mandala building out of natural objects, one part lesson on beauty and impermanence, Morning Altars has resonated globally. Day is a beauty bringer, and his work encourages people and gardeners to be deep listeners to the ways of their place. In honor of this season of harvest, of taking stock and giving thanks, Day joins us via Skype. Welcome, Day. Thank you. Good to be here. So I like to start with your earliest influences that grew you into a a plant or nature-loving person to start with? What I would say is my earliest influences are probably the most uh, invisible. I have an early, early memory of when I was about five years old. Uh, after a rainstorm, 
I would be the kid that would run outside on the driveway and I would see all the worms um, displaced from the earth and I would feel so, I would say brokenhearted about their displacement that I felt it, that it was my responsibility, it was my mission at that time at five to save them all. So I would take a leaf and I would kind of usher each each worm on their leaf and kind of plug a little hole in the ground and help them get back into their back into their home. And I would decorate each hole um, with sticks and berries and and uh, pine cones and until there was a constellation of of worm mandalas on on my front lawn. I would say, you know, as a child, um, seeing it my mission in a way to to help um, kind of be a beauty bringer to the earth um, was my earliest influence. Uh, it was just it was in it was in service um, to help kind of these little creatures get back into the earth and to help make their return more beautiful was definitely my mission. And as I grew up, I was impacted by many, many beauty bringers that worked with the earth, uh, in particularly Andy Goldsworthy, um, seeing his work in the world and being impacted by the way in which he brought ephemeral art to the human imagination. I mean, this is not a, this is not a new thing for humans to do. It's actually very ancient to work with the earth in an impermanent way, to build beauty and to offer it to both the people and back to the earth. But there's something very modern about what Andy was on about, and it inspired me. So for most of my 20s, I was working on Broadway as kind of a side job. I was doing earth art, and I was an artist in residence at a variety of retreat centers, and just trying to find my way, wanting to build art and be outside at the same time. I was really, really on a mission in some ways to connect my my love and my relationship with with the earth and also my need to express and to give back to both the people and to the land in a beautiful way. Where did you grow up and what then led you to Broadway? So I grew up in New York. As a child, I was living in the suburbs with always a passion to express myself and to be heard in, in high school and in college. I was an actor. And then when I decided to work in the professional theater, I was drawn to being a director and someone who was um, working with vision. But mostly, I would say in retrospect, I was just deeply, deeply passionate about ritual which I think is what theater really is. It's Mm -hmm. bringing something impermanent to life just for that moment in front of the audience where it will never exist again uh, in that way. I mean, of course, theater is scripted, but every night is deeply unique. And so I think I've always been drawn to the impermanence of things because I think that they, in some way, really make things valuable. When you're seeing something as if it will only last for that moment, you really feel like you're in something alive because it will eventually end. That's what drew me to the theater when I was living in New York. And so I lived in Times Square for almost a decade. And uh, I had, you know, 10,000 people passing by my front door every hour, basically. (laughs) And it was this little uh, community garden down the block from me, this little green oasis 
that was a respite for me in the face of so much light and activity and, and directedness, you know, and everyone just always on the move and going 10,000 miles an hour. And it was this community garden that really saved my life there. Hmm. And that was in a way bringing me, weaving me back to my original mission and purpose, which was to be with the earth and to begin to also weave beauty back into that relationship. I find that in all of your current pieces, I think to myself, this is a garden. And that in essence is what gardens are. They are ephemeral acts of beauty and expression brought to the earth. And this is such a beautiful manifestation of that impulse. For those of of the listeners who who don't exactly know what I do, I mean, essentially, I'm taking natural materials and and arranging them on the earth in sometimes very geometric patterns that when you step back, they look as if they are um, part mandala, part um, part installation. They have color, texture. Not one of my pieces really looks the same. And Mm-mm. to me, there's a relationship to the garden here. It looks like a feast. Sometimes I feel like I'm building this beautiful feast that is uh, feeding me and feeding the land and and feeding all those that encounter it, and and then it's gone. And a good garden to me is the same thing. It's just it's feeding. Mm -hmm. Um, You're just so satiated by just being inside of it. Yeah, it is a a feast. uh, What what you do and and what gardeners do on a daily basis and every day like the theater like your work it's different we keep using the word mandala can you define for for listeners what we mean when we say that and i want to say that i don't really talk about my work in that way right. it's a reference point but it's from another culture and i really try and create art from this culture so that's why i call them morning altars the interesting thing about mandalas is um, when the kind of the modern translation of the word means circle, um, oftentimes because the mandala is maybe made into a circle or um, because in some ways they're uh, representative of the universe. Um, but another way of translating the word that I resonate with is whole, W-H-O-L-E. It represents the wholeness of something. And in my work, and maybe even in, for instance, Tibetan sand mandalas or Native American medicine circles or in Peruvian despachos or Indian rangolis, all of which are impermanent earth art, the wholeness of it, the Mm W-H-O-L-E, is in its beginning and ending. So the wholeness means that it's not just beginning or, or sustaining itself. It actually has an ending to it. Mm-hmm. And that's the impermanence of my work, which is it's teaching me all the time, but it's also teaching the people that encounter it that to really love the wholeness of life is to love its beginning and its middle and its ending. Mm-hmm. And even the part of which looks very different than what you thought it would look like or what you intended it would look like. <laughs> it's the it's the wholeness of a of a of a life seen in overview and mm-hmm. that microsm of the universe or the cosmos is um 
it's very powerful when you think about it. Mm-hmm. And, and I think it's important to to acknowledge in our culture, there's a great resistance to uh, really knowing the endings of things. You know, we're we're very much in a culture that wants to continue to grow. For you know, we want to be in a garden sense. We want to be in springtime all of the time, <laughs> and especially because around this time it's it's fall, and it's about ending. So yeah. it's about it's about that completion of the cycle and to really get to know what it looks like when things wither and when things grow old and when things die and to know that they have purpose and to know that the purpose is beyond what you expect it or prefer it to be. Um, that's really truly the the deep teaching in the impermanent art, yeah. um, which is I, I could spend sometimes up to four days um, building installations, um, and it's encounter with the wind and with the sun and with animals and with itself, uh, flowers, for instance, just withering up in my presence. And, and I'm really at that edge consistently of what I want it to be, my idea of what the piece should look like. Mm-hmm. And the, the other side of that, which is the limitation of what I want it to be and what everything else is impacting upon it. And it's that edge that the work really gets to live and come alive. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. As gardeners and outdoor advocates, I think our gardens and outdoor spaces grant us intuitive, deep listening and looking moments of mystery and wonder and daydreaming that, like winter's darkness and dormancy itself, restores us. Here's another gratitude in the garden offering, and then we'll be right back after a break to hear more from Morning Altars artist Day Shilkret. My name's Flora. I live and garden along the High Line Canal in Littleton, Colorado. To me, gratitude in the garden looks like a big book of memories. Memories of working alongside my mother in her beautiful garden. Memories of delicious dinners on warm summer nights enjoyed with family and friends. Memories of when my children and the fairies who live in our garden wrote each other notes back and forth, and memories of watering my pots in the cool and quiet mornings before a really hot day while my doggies follow me around. This is what gratitude in the garden looks like to me. We'll be right back after a break for more of Gratitude in the Garden Cultivating Place special in honor of this late autumn to winter holiday season. Stay with us. This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. 
What does gratitude in the garden look like to you? Here's one gardener's view. My name is Ginny Blom and I garden in London and Oxfordshire in the United Kingdom. Gratitude in the garden for me has become an all-consuming vote of thanks to the fates who encouraged me to be a full-time garden maker. Gardening has allowed me access to the countryside all over the world. As a result, I've seen many distant places and met all manner of people who share this common thread. Today, for example, I spent the day driving across the autumnal countryside. Soft sunshine tinted everything with gold. I drove past Blenheim Palace with its capability brown landscape and later Rousham made by William Kent in the 18th century. Both are in Oxfordshire, near where I live. Gratitude in the garden is knowing that people, from unknown gardeners to the great names, have always gardened with vision and energy and for the sheer pleasure of sharing the results with others. We're back after a break to speak more with the mindful earth artist Day Shilkret about his own offering and awareness practice, known around the world as morning altars. Welcome back. I would like you to step back for a moment and discuss what brought you in your early adulthood into this daily practice for yourself of this ritual going out wherever you were, collecting organic and natural objects to incorporate into a, a design and, and then let go of that design once, once you felt it was complete. For many years, I think we're going, I'm going on my 15th year, I was making birthday altars as a way of, of honoring the cycle of my life. I would invite, invite friends over. We would you know, essentially have it um, as a point of reflection for my year. I've been doing that now for, this is, will be the 15th year that I've been doing it. But that's an, that was an annual event. It wasn't until actually I had a, a pretty grief-soaked breakup some years ago. It was one of those breakups that it was heavy. It was so um, heartbroken that at the time, all I really could do was take my dog on a walk outside in, in my neighborhood. My house is basically connected to uh, about 15,000 acres of regional park. And all I could do was take my little dog, Rudy, uh, for a walk in every morning and kind of just drag my brokenhearted self through the hills and for some time just dragging through life. Deeply, deeply melancholy. And one day we were walking, I remember it pretty well, we were walking through the hills pretty early in the morning. The fog was rolling through the hills and we found ourselves on one of the, the higher hills here in Wildcat. I just decided to sit down at the foot of a eucalyptus tree, collect myself to my dog's chagrin and <laughs> saw in front of me a pretty big community of amber colored mushrooms glistening in the, in the morning fog and and I just, I don't know what compelled me. Maybe it was a memory of those birthday altars, or maybe it was just the need to do something with my hands. But I started to arrange the mushrooms, and I brought in some eucalyptus caps and bark, and for about an hour, just worked my hands. Didn't work my mind, and allowed my grief to metabolize. About an hour went by like it was a minute. <laughs> And my dog was pretty ready to go. And I looked down and I saw that what I created was beautiful and took me out of my thought patterns and took me out of the heaviness of my grief. And I got up thinking, wow, I feel a little bit lighter. 
I feel a little bit more connected to myself again. And I wondered aloud, really, I, well, I spoke to my dog, to be honest with you. <laughs> and I wondered to her, I, you know, I basically said, what if I could do this every morning for, for a month, for 30 days? Yeah. What if I could come back to this spot and I could just make some more beauty for 30 days? You know, as a way really of just trying to exercise the grief and and to bring myself back to life. And I did. I, I eventually took a basket and my dog and we would wander pretty aimlessly until we got to somewhere around that area on the way we would collect what I now would consider to be treasures, profound treasures, like beautiful leaves that basically were painted with all the colors of the season on its one little leaf and bright red berries and and little owl feathers and and we would eventually find our way back to this eucalyptus tree and and I'd spend about an hour sometimes more and I would just build something beautiful and I did that for 30 days and realized I didn't want to stop yeah it hasn't stopped since then it's become a a pretty consistent daily practice because there's always something to make meaning of in life to acknowledge as a milestone or some emotion to process or some reason to just praise being alive. I'm never short of, of reasons to make a morning altar. It's almost as if the, this muse that I'm working with is just always ready to make something beautiful. And it's become a daily practice and I've been teaching it around the world um, for the last few years. And it's become a needed thing because I think collectively a lot of people are looking to be brought back to life these days and to make more beauty in the dark times that we've found ourselves in. At what point did you, even in your own mind, refer to it as mourning altar? You know, it's funny you ask. It's a name that I didn't choose. I think it, it actually evolved at a point where I was basically at the beginning just sending these these photographs out to my friends. At the beginning of the, of this daily practice, I was truly enamored with what was coming through my hands. Mm-hmm. Um, I just would send them to friends, and and I remember at the time just referring to the time of the day that they were happening because I'm I, at the beginning of this process, I was not a morning person. Mm-hmm. The word altar to me has always been something that I've connected with. The way my home is designed, the way my desk is laid out, the way I live my life is very akin to to taking regular objects, found objects, rocks and pine cones and feathers, and and in the process of making them beautiful, it sanctifies them in my mind. It is a process of putting my life on an altar, blessing it up for something greater than myself. And that's part of this practice. When I build a a morning altar, at the end of the process, the fifth movement, I have seven movements of building. The fifth movement is the practice of, of making it for something greater than yourself. You know, so recently I had a friend who gave birth to a baby girl and just felt compelled one morning to go outside and make some beauty and to gift it to this baby for that child to grow up knowing that you know someone cared so deeply for its birth in this world that they were compelled to make something beautiful for it to me that's part of this practice is that there as much as i love some of the ephemeral artists out there these have another purpose 
which is in some way to to bring people back to this the sacredness of life i want to be a part of the many people on this planet who are helping to make more meaning it it speaks to something you referred to earlier in our conversation and that is this this desire for ritual to me gardening is one of the ways we do that and this practice of yours is so clearly one of the ways that we can do that the etymology of the word ritual is that it it has the same roots as the word rhythm <sighs> my teacher stephen jenkinson speaks about it in terms of a homelessness mm. in the culture mm. um, where we don't necessarily come from the place that we live. Most of us don't come from the place that we live. And we've lost in some way a rhythm with the land. And the rituals come from being in relationship with the seasons and being in relationship with the rains and being in relationship with the times of the day. And the way I found in my art back into those rhythms is just to be outside. And I was talking about the movements. The first one is the wander. It's the going out and the foraging and the really just getting lost in the place. And the second movement is about returning to a particular place on the land where you're going to build. And in that return, I really try and teach about the art of listening mm. to the place. Just sitting there and it's not a medit it's not meditating with your eyes closed and trying to go inside. It's actually just allowing yourself to be um, a deep listener to the ways of the place, um, to what birds may already be there or already live there, to the, to the movement of the sun, to where the wind is blowing. And to, there's no participation in that except observation. And eventually the place almost welcomes you into her rhythm. As modern humans, we're so disconnected from from that rhythm because we're, we're in this self-directed, I wouldn't even call it a rhythm, it's just this forward movement. We are desperately in need of, of finding our way back to this interconnected rhythm with, with the earth. And so the ritual of building an altar of gardening is really etymologically speaking, it's finding our way back to that original rhythm, mm -hmm. um, which is provided to us by the, the good, and great planet that we live on. Talk about the next phases in your in your process. That deep listening, and then the, you you describe in in the process right up um, on your website this idea of clearing as well. Uh -huh. So uh -huh. that that clearing to me speaks to what you were just saying. Of we aren't in a rhythm. We're just in this this forward motion, and I think. To some extent, the cultural way in which gardening is spoken about predominantly is buying into that, is making it into a commodity, is making it into uh -huh. yard work. And, uh -huh. and it's not. It's this sacred act that puts us into contact with the earth and with ourselves and with everything that lives around us. Mm -hmm. And it does create this listening if we let it and this, and this clearing. But the clearing to me is like helping to eliminate that just constant noise. Good gardening integrates and incorporates the many rhythms of the place, mm -hmm. um, the season, the time of the day, the um, all of the plants in the area, the region, the placement of water, the, the diversity of the place. Yeah. And as humans, 
we operate from one place in this constellation of relationships that we find ourselves in on this planet. And we have, as modern humans, we've lost that, you know, especially as, as modern humans in the dominant culture that we live in, we are, we've seen, we see ourselves on top of the place and as almost as masters of the place. And, um, and the place is basically, a, as you said, a commodity or something that we can manipulate and, and control. And therefore, you know, we have really lost our way. And maybe what you're speaking into and definitely what I'm speaking into is a way back. Yeah. Um, I'm not trying to say that in any way that we should, um, you know, kind of go back to completely primitive ways. What I'm trying to say is that we in some ways need to re, um, renegotiate our relationship to all of our neighbors, to the human and non-human world, and to recognize that we don't know everything. Um, in these times that we're in, which are incredibly uncertain, one of the best things that we can do is to be is to put ourselves in better relationship with change, with impermanence, with mystery. Gardening and definitely creating impermanent earth art places us in that relationship where we have to do a lot of listening and a lot of in our intuition and our capacity to wonder at things and our capacity to behold and our capacity to be surprised and to be deeply interested. And those are all skill sets that we exercise when we are in good relationship with the place that we are. And that includes being in relationship with animals and plants and bugs and weather and seasons and and all of these aspects of being human, those are skill sets. All of those capacities of wonder and intuition and surprise, they're skill sets. But if we don't exercise them daily, they atrophy. Yeah. And so these movements, the first movement, for instance, is to wander and wonder in the place. Whether it's country or city or whether it's suburbs, whether it's the beach or the desert. And to just exercise that mu those muscles and to behold. It's reminding me of a workshop I taught a few weeks ago in, in the middle of Manhattan. I gathered together a pretty big group of people downtown at this place called the Miracle Garden, actually. And in these workshops, I often teach about the seven movements before we go out and do them. And I gathered these, this group of New Yorkers you know, which I'm born and raised. So I, they're my people, <laughs> you know, and I was teaching the first movement and I never asked this before, but I did at this workshop. And I said, raise your hand. If you spend just naturally in your day, 30 minutes of non self-directed movement where you just wander or you just maybe roam, you know, you just go about maybe your neighborhood or your house and you're just not trying to get somewhere. No one raised their hand. <laughs> and then I said, fine, 15 minutes. No one raised their hand. And I said, okay, fine, five minutes. And still, no one raised their hand. And I, I looked at, we were all pretty shocked. And I looked at them and I said, so what I'm gathering right now is every moment of your waking day, all of you spend in destination addiction. <laughs> All of you are deeply addicted to thinking that you, sh that you should know where you're going. 
I said, so consider this, because children don't do this, right? Children yeah. just wander and play and explore, and and they're, they grow very strong in these capacities to wander and, and be curious and, and to be surprised at things. And so I said, so, so children have these skill sets in, in spades. And I said, so what are the consequences of your skills being weak? And what are the consequences on your personal life, on your community and your personal relationships, and on the greater world? Collectively, at this point in our march forward, we desperately need people who are well-practiced in our capacity to wonder and have a strong sense of intuition. We need this right now. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't just come. They're skills like, a, like you know, lifting weights or playing piano. They need to be practiced every day. To me, that's the way forward is to have a practice at these deeply needed skills. Morning altars is one way of doing that. But I really am advocating for people to, um, to consider how needed they are. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. Morning Altars artist Day Shilkret creates a practice of mindfulness and offering with his floral foliage seed and other natural material foraged morning altars. Each one is different. Just as the word garden means and looks like something different to each of us, so too we each bring to the garden something different. And we receive something different in return from these symbiotic relationships we form with our personal spaces. They range from light and airy to playful and bright, and other times quiet and contemplative. Here is a poem one gardener offered up as her vision of gratitude in the garden. Will there be this cool morn, a bird atop the dead branch forlorn? Lower down the squirrel's delight in hiding nuts and picking fights. Greedy blue jay weighs the snag. Your belly's too big, its partner nags. A hummingbird darts strategically while the garden browns magically. Mockingbird sings each dawn way up high, spinning yarns. Once the hawk arrived, I just cannot touch the old dead branch we love so much. We'll be right back after a break for more of Gratitude in the Garden Cultivating Place special in honor of this late autumn to winter holiday season. Stay with us. This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. What does gratitude in the garden look like to you? 
Here's another gardener's view. My name is Pen Penda. I live in Macedon, Victoria, Australia. I'm grateful to my garden for being a container for my dreams and sometimes frustrations, for holding my curiosity and my enthusiasm. It feeds all of my five senses daily and also fills me with wonder of the something other. Put simply, it is my teacher, my muse, my friend. We're back after a break to speak more with the mindful earth artist Day Shulkret about his own offering and awareness practice known around the world as morning altars. Welcome back. What comes up for me is that this is exactly why I see what you do as one form of gardening, of intentional spiritual gardening, is that this is what happens for, for me and most gardeners I know, that you you go out into the garden, maybe with an intention, or maybe you're just walking by and you notice something, and then all of a sudden, it's been 30 minutes, 40 minutes, and I, yeah. I did nothing that I intended to do, and I could hear myself breathing, and it was a gift that the the garden went, come here, you need this right now. Are there altars that you have built, Day, that you have created that stick in your mind? Because you have made thousands of them and every single one is different. But are, are there ones that you could visually describe for listeners to get a sense of their, their depth and their scope? Well, I talk about my pieces like they're my children. <laughs> it's like asking a, a mother, can you talk about your favorite child? I mean, it's really like it's an impossible thing. But I can speak into maybe a piece or two whose memory is coming up. One of them is a story. You know, I don't know what I'm doing at the beginning of the process. Right. You know, I literally go out into the hills here or on the street and I just see what's what's growing and I see what's already there and I in some ways take the found and do my best to make it profound. This one time I was walking, I was taking a walk with my friend Ernest and uh, we were walking through the hills and laughing and talking, being friends and uh, we came upon a walnut tree and at the base of the walnut tree were these, you know, the dandelion puff balls, Mm -hmm. you know, they were maybe like seven times the size they almost seem like these prehistoric versions. They were the size of, you know, a good softball. And I was just in awe of how beautiful and delicate they were. I have basically two rules of negotiation if I'm to harvest from the earth. The first one, to give first and take second. I really do my best to try not to objectify plants. They're growing just as much as anything else. And, and taking from the earth, I'm not entitled to it. The second rule that I have is called the one-fourth rule and you know if there's a collection of things I won't I won't take more than one-fourth of it we're walking home you know we had another about 30 minutes of of travel and it wasn't not windy and I'm walking home with this with this enormous puffball doing my best to protect it with my body and we eventually got to my street and we eventually got to the top of my driveway and Eventually, this just out of nowhere, this wind came and just smacked it and the whole thing blew apart. <laughs> the seeds dispersed. Oh, we stood there, you know, this real moment of just being in the, just the changing nature of the natural world. You know, it's like as much as I wanted this, um, it wasn't in the cards. And so, but I'm a pr- pretty persistent guy. And so I returned to that hill and. Um, twice a day for a week 
looking for its its brothers and sisters to see if they would be willing to to make beauty with me because I I found this this the one that I carried home um, the altar actually already started to imagine itself in my mind uh-huh. and so um, I I just had to do it I had to make it happen and so um, I returned there twice a day nothing 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 and a week later I had a flight I think it was about you know three or four in the afternoon and. I returned to that spot, same spot, and there were actually two. And I think maybe they, the plant saw me as worthy because I was pretty consistent, <laughs> persistent. I harvested two, and and I took them back to my um, to the spot by the creek where I sometimes make many of my altars. And keep in mind, I had a flight, you know, so it wasn't <laughs> like I could I could lollygag. I really, um, I, I actually said to myself, "You're insane." Um, you know, like actually building a, a piece of art, you know, when you should be packing. And so, um, but I had to. And so I, um, I actually built the structure and, and put this enormous puffball on it last. And uh, I built the structure and I went through all the steps and I had my camera ready because I knew the ephemeral nature of this plant. And, um, and I knew from my own kind of disappointment in the first endeavor that this is not a guaranteed thing. Um, and so the last thing I did was I took one of them and I crowned the piece with it. And within two seconds, the wind came and blew it, blew it into the Creek, blew that puffball into the Creek. And I was just like, wow, this is, this is really not, this is probably not going to happen is what I thought to myself, you know, it was really a high tense moment where I was in deep, uh, negotiation with the, with the wind, deep negotiation with the plant. I mean, it was, it was really a moment where, you know, I'm thinking right now of a, of a, of a scene in rivers and tides with Andy Goldsworthy, where he spent, you know, an entire morning building this beautiful, um, grid made out of, uh, reeds and, and thorns. And, He's almost done, and the whole entire thing just collapses on him, and yeah. you get to see his heartbreak there. And I was really in that moment myself, um, you know, just really in the in the uncertainty if this would get pulled off. And so I took the second and last one, and I crowned, I put it on on the piece, and with the grace of all things, I was able to snap. I think I got maybe five photographs which is a basically two minutes and then it was gone. And this entire thing that took me a, you know, a week of, of foraging and um, maybe five hours of building the base and, and the crowning and, and the whole entire moment of its perfection of how I saw it and how I wanted it to be lasted two minutes. Mm. And it was a, it was a big lesson for me in that moment where, um, where I realized, you know, this is, this is about you and it's not about you. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, you know, people can see that altar on my website or on Instagram, but you're seeing it. I actually photographed it in its destruction. I photograph all of my altars, both in its, how I want them to be and, and how nature wants them to be. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and they can see the difference. Um, I'm, I marvel at our my relationship our relationship as humans um trying to create something 
in the natural world and to I'm humbled by it. Um, and I'm thinking right now of my mother who she's moving out of Florida because, you know, all of the hurricanes were really at, uh, in some way the earth is trying to remind us of our place again. And, um, and I'm doing this every day with this practice of just trying to remember that it's not what I want it to be all the time, but that I'm in a, I'm in a dialogue, I'm in a conversation, um, with, uh, with the living world. And, uh, David White says it best in his poem. He says at the end of the poem, um, everything, everything is waiting for you. And that's the name of the poem. Everything is waiting for you. And the whole poem speaks about, um, our, how the, the teapots in your house and the stairs and the doors. And I mean, he's speaking very much inside of your home, but how everything is just waiting for you to, to converse with it and speak with it and, um, and to, to step out of the isolation of our existence and to um, step into the dialogue of being alive. And um, impermanence relating to, to change and uncertainty and, and uh, mystery is, our, is very much our um, place as humans and it's actually where we find our humanity is by putting that mystery at the center of the altar and that's this story of this puffball floating away was definitely putting the uncertainty and the mystery on the crown of the altar my life continues to be refined and shaped by learning how to relate to being a part of this much greater world that we find ourselves in. To finish up and come sort of full circle, as as it were, day, what are your deepest hopes for this practice that you have launched off into the world? And, and what are your, your deepest hopes personally and for our culture? Well, um, well I would say that um, it's not particularly a hope right now. Um, it's a um, testifying is what I would call it, that one, one of the magical um, consequences of, of uh, a platform like Instagram or Facebook is the capacity that I've noticed in reaching people of taking a seed from this, this garden, this, these altars, and basically um, spreading them around the world. And, and the, um, the thing that I'm witnessing and in awe of and quite humbled by is where they're reaching. Mm. And so I, I get altered. People send me, um, they're inspired, and they send me altars that they have done from all around the world. This week uh, was Australia and Poland and Brazil. A few weeks ago, I got an altar from Iran. Mm. Um, you know, I have uh, people moving to different places, and they're building as a way of, of, um, of exploring the new place that they live. Um, and so, you know, to me, this is the beginning of a international movement, um, which is really just a remembrance of how people used to do it, where, where people are connecting to the place that they are or that they live and it's available to any age. It's available to anyone of any, um, economic background. You don't need any money really to go outside and to make some beauty from the earth. 
Um, and so I'm in awe of how this is changing people's lives all around the world. And I'm thinking of particularly of a story of a woman um, in England who was uh, dropping her kids off at school. And she was sitting in her car just, uh, you know, just considering the day and what she was going to do with the day. And, and she also, you know, knew that it was the anniversary of her mother's death. And she just felt uneasy, you know, like she didn't want to work for that day, but she, she didn't know how to, to give back to her, to her mother. And she was just sitting in the car flipping through Instagram and she came to my Instagram page and, and she was inspired and she went, she left the car. Hallelujah. She got out of her car and she went behind the school um, and she just foraged a bit. She found some pine cones and some lichen. This is in England. And she found some fox bones. And she made a piece, uh, spent a, an hour or two making an, a morning altar out of the things she found. And she wrote me a story on Instagram of this experience. And she said it was the first time since her mother died that she felt like she connected with her. <laughs> And that she was able to, in some way, feel closer to her mom from this impermanent art experience. And, and so this is just one story. I mean, I, a part of, uh, you know, as I said, I'm, I'm writing a book that is coming out fall 2018. And the book will be, of course, one thread of the book will be, um, you know, full, beautiful images of, of the altars that I've built. And the second thread, of course, will be the seven movements of the of the work um, that I spoke about today uh, for those people that really want to get into the deeper mechanics of making them and understand the wisdom behind each of the steps and how they can help you personally or collectively. And, but the third, the third uh, thread in the book is um, people all over the world who are building their altars and photographs of their works and their stories and, um, and really just, taking this process and this practice and, and giving it back to the people. And while I love and adore the work that I do, I'm also equally as enchanted by the work that I see witnessed all around the world. And I'm humbled by that and totally excited by that and that it could be a thing. It could be a practice like yoga and meditation. And recently one of my audience members actually did a, a uh, member of the ice bucket challenge. She did a, a morning altars challenge and she challenged 10 of her friends to build them uh, for a week. And that this could be a, a resource to help people at this time is just deeply humbling and also what I'm really, really on about. So I'm excited. I'm, I'm heading off um, November and December to write this book and it's due out fall 2018. And and my, my prayer is that this book um, can kind of add fuel to the fire of this being a, a resource um, to help the people to connect back to the earth and to connect back to their creative, their creative lives, their creative selves, and, and to recognize that actually that's the same thing. Yeah, exactly. Thank you so much for being with us today. Um, it has been an honor hearing about your your mission and about the beauty you bring to this world. Thank you so much for your your time, your capacities, and and your willingness to listen to um, this you know very humble artist 
Thank you so much. Dave Shilkrat is the artist behind the practice and global movement behind mourning altars, a practice like that of every gardener I know, including the gardeners who offered their own voices to the gardener's gratitude gathering, which reconnects us to our own sense of wonder, mystery, grace, and play. His circles and squares, triangles and star-shaped, among other designs, are full of colorful flowers, foliage form, shapely fruit, fun, and life in all its stages, beauty and mystery. My name is Gary, and my garden is a quiet reach of aspen forest on the banks of Rock Creek in the northern Rocky Mountains. Over some 30 years, these woods have nourished in me a gratitude for three things, three qualities I find I need to stay in touch with if I'm to live well in the world. The first of those qualities is beauty, the second is community, and the third is mystery. These days, whether I'm in these woods or a thousand miles away, that precious wisdom keeps this wild garden always close at hand. My name is Emily, and I garden in Seattle. I'm thankful for my garden. Like a friend, we grow together, change together, and like an old school chum, we cannot see each other for a while and then kept right up where we left off. I am thankful for all the little creatures, the bees, the wasps, and the worms, even the slugs, snails, and cutworms. I feel honored to observe them in the flowers and the trees, always doing some mysterious set of chores. My smallness in the world is a good feeling. I am happy to be reminded that I am just a little part of an enormous, complex, living, breathing world. Thank you to the gardeners from around the world who submitted their gratitude in the garden clips throughout this special episode of Cultivating Place. May the fall to winter season be one of festivity and an ever-growing gratitude in your garden. If you'd like to hear conversations just like this on a weekly basis, visit cultivatingplace.com. While you're there, take a minute to subscribe to the Cultivating Place podcast. Being one of our podcast subscribers means you get to listen to the show whenever works best for you and make sure you never miss an episode. Want to be part of the conversation? Follow Cultivating Place on Instagram and Facebook. And tell me, what are you grateful for in your garden? I'd love to know. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio. The program is made possible in part by the Stanley Smith Horticultural Trust. Our producer is Sarah Bohannon. Our communications coordinator is Casey Gardner. Original theme music is by Matt Schultz. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.